learn about how an architect is setting the stage for better health by design. We explore the relationship between neuroscience and architecture. We give examples of healthy design in the built environment and talk about design diagnostics. I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab, a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Upali Nanda. She is the Global Practice Director for Research at HKS, which is a 1,500-person international architecture firm. She also teaches as an associate professor of practice at the Taubman School of Architecture and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan and serves as the executive director for the nonprofit Center for Advanced Design Research and Education. Upali is the author of the book Synthetics, A Cross-Modal Approach to Designing for the Senses. Her widely published research on health and well-being, neuroscience and architecture, and outcome-driven design has won numerous awards. Upali was recognized as one of the top 10 most influential people in healthcare design by Healthcare Design Magazine. She's been honored by Architectural Record with the Women in Architecture Innovator Award, and she's featured in the book on 100 Women Who Change Architecture. Upali's design research is anchored on the art and the science of being human. Check out our website. It's brand new. Our producer, Rob Puglisi, works so hard at it. You can find it at designlabpod.com. We love, love, love it when our listeners give us a shout out on social media. Thank you to Drew Cortez on Instagram, who called Design Lab a master class on how to both stay intellectually curious and generate positive impact with others. Thank you, Drew. If you haven't done so already, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Support us by giving us five stars leaving us a review on the podcast show notes. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can also do that on the website. Now, here's my conversation with Apali Nanda. Upali, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so thrilled that you are on the show. You are not half as thrilled as I am, Bon. I'm so excited to be here. We go way back. We were just talking in 2017. You organized a panel at an amazing conference, Stanford MedX, organized by Larry Chu, who was a mm-hmm. previous guest on the Design Lab. And I just can't believe it was that long ago. I know. And I remember the panel was called, Did We Forget the Stage? Yes. <laughs> and, so, and I remember because I'd been at MedX the year before, Absolutely loved it and was struck by the fact that we were talking about such incredible innovation, but the architects and the planners and the designers were not in the room. And That's so right. that was kind of our conversation that started saying it's in the theater of life, if architecture sets the stage mm. or design of the built environment sets the stage, yeah. do we often forget the stage? We remember the actors, we remember the props, we remember the script, we remember mm. the sets. But sometimes the built environment often gets forgotten. So yeah. I remember that panel so well because we had you, we had one more surgeon. Uh-huh. Yeah. We had another architect. An architect. And yeah. Monica, who yes. is a does everything, but a lot of 3D printing. And she's also trained as an architect as well. Absolutely. She's a design thinker and an architecture yeah. maker. It was amazing. Yeah. Now that panel is almost representative of your expertise. You are trained as an architect, but mm-hmm. 
you have expertise in all these other fields and, and you're interested in health. So what inspired you as an architect to follow this path and be interested in how we design better health? Now, it started with an interest in how we design for humans and in human perception. And it actually came out of a lack. When I was in architecture school, I always had these really multisensorial experiential ideas, which I could never represent because our medium was visual. Mm. So I couldn't communicate entirely what I was conceptualizing in terms of a fully sensory experience. And I got fascinated by how the human brain works, how the human body works, how do we react to place? Mm. And that started this entire journey, my dissertation, which is published as a book called Synthetics, was all about sensory perception and how we design for the senses and how we distribute attention across our different sensory modalities. And the whole experience of place is a choreography. Mm. It's always changing. So we design something, we think it's permanent, but it changes moment to moment based on how a human interacts with it. And that got me really, really interested. So when I did my thesis, I did all of these things around the human sciences. And there was a point where Mardell Shepley, who is a wonderful mentor, walked up to me one day and said, do you realize you've done everything you need for a certificate in health systems design? And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking in that way. This wasn't like systematic. It was just like Correct. you were it, following your interest and studying them. I was them. following my interest and I was following this deep passion for designing for humans and communicating that, which made me land in health where you have no choice. The stakes are so high. Mm. You have no choice. I was actually... In school, I had the privilege of being in class with Roger Aldrich. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I was one of his last batch of students, I'm guessing. And funny story, because I wasn't coming in from healthcare. I had no idea what a big deal he was, right? Can you tell the audience how big of a deal he is? Sure. So Dr. Roger Aldrich is an environmental psychologist, one of the founders of the field of evidence-based design, mm -hmm. and most well-known for his seminal work on the impact of something simple like a view from a window. The study, I think, was in UPenn with one cohort of patients who had a view out of a window and one cohort that did not, and showed, looking back at records from eight years of patient data, that those all other things being controlled for, that patients who had a view out of the window spent less time in the hospital, had fewer pain medications prescribed. Yeah, yeah and I think these patients had gallbladder surgery. Uh -huh. from they had gallbladder yeah. surgery and were recovering from it. Yeah. So fascinating paper published in Science. I think the first time something about the built environment was published in Science. Mm. I know our good friend Andrew Ibrahim is right now doing yeah. some work to replicate those results. So it was really interesting. Like That work truly for this entire field of basing design decisions on evidence and showing that design has a direct relationship to health. 
yeah. in the story they both. That's a passion of yours of linking design to, to outcomes. outcomes. Yes, absolutely. And I think it was born there. But I love telling this story because the naivete of being a student, you never know what great minds you're surrounded by. You don't know it at the time. And I remember going into class and coming out and telling a friend of mine in public health saying, I don't understand what the big deal is. I mean, you look at a window, you look at a brick wall. Of course, if you look at a window compared to the brick wall, you get better. I had no idea about the dearth of evidence or how significant this body of work was. Mm. And I still remember what he said to me, this person from public health, saying, you have no idea if you can show such an incredible impact for something so tiny, look at what he's done for your entire field. Mm. And I don't think I had framed it that way. I was like, yeah, we designers, we're always full of ideas of all the difference our designs can make. We don't always think about, is it proved out? Mm. So when you're studying architecture, that wasn't something that was taught routinely about linking design to outcomes? It still isn't. One of the things I'm privileged to do, I call myself a pracademic because I serve as the global practice director for research at a pretty large firm, HKS, with more than 1,500 people. But I also get to spend part of my time teaching students in the University of Michigan. And so I'm a pracademic. I have a foot in academia. And it's amazing because I get to see what we teach and I get to now take that message from practice to academia and vice versa about how important it is to link design to outcomes because yeah. just saying design can affect outcomes is not enough. Yeah. Now, tell us about... Okay, there's a couple of tabs open here. So, <laughs> so as research director at a global architecture firm, that's an unusual thing, right? Uh-huh. Most architecture firms, even big ones, don't have as robust of a research Many of them probably don't have a research division, right? So mm -hmm. tell us about that work. Like what type of work do you do and why does an architecture firm have research? So you're right, Bon, that it isn't practice. It, it isn't well-established practice to have a research division. But compared to a decade ago when I started in the field, I think when we there was a point in time where there were three directors of research positions across the nation. Three, only three. three. And there was a time. And now that's changed. Now most firms do understand research is important. There is a higher level of accountability in the field that we did not have before. In health in particular, in large part because of the field of evidence-based design, that accountability really has increased and we are being held accountable to the outcomes that we have promised. So that's a shift. There's a shift in how clients think. There's a shift in how designers and architects think. And there's a growing awareness that if it can affect outcomes, then we have an ethical and a fiscal responsibility to measure what those outcomes were. But mm -hmm. we needed a huge amount of research to really establish that link in the first place. And it's a little similar to the practice that physicians or researchers do. If 
we're developing a new drug or a new procedure, we want to do the research to show that new drug or procedure actually improves clinical outcomes. So, yep. so is that the type of work that you do at HKS? So it's it definitely is the genesis of FitBond. I think evidence-based medicine was the launch point for evidence-based design. The challenge with evidence-based design is the number of confounds and variables mm -hmm. that you have to work through. So doing a full randomized control trial isn't really feasible. Yeah, because you can't build a building and a placebo building and test in different cities and hold a, a lot of exactly. factors, control for a lot of factors. Exactly. So mm -hmm. our happy medium in that has been understanding what we can do in practice. So for example, we do something called design diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Design diagnostics is similar to like a doctor does diagnostics before they tell you what you need. So designers should be going and understanding the current state mm. in a very methodical way and diagnosing what your root issues are, operational, health outcomes related, experiential, and then say, okay, what are we really designing for? Mm. So that's been a big shift. So diagnostics and discovery have become part of our process. The second thing that we do is a lot of prototyping and testing. So mm. mock-ups, depending on what fidelity is the right fidelity for the right question. Like we do a lot of prototype and testing. Sometimes it might be in VR. Sometimes it might be full-scale foam core mock-ups. But let's try out the scenarios. Let's try out what we are trying to design and see mm. what the impact is. And then on the final end, after delivery, we try to make sure that we go back and measure outcomes. Mm. And if we have done the diagnostics, then the diagnostics data becomes a baseline mm. for what the performance evaluation does. We do not call it post-occupancy evaluation because there's nothing post about occupancy. Occupancy is a continuous and evolving thing, but we do call it, our health team talks about it in terms of functional performance evaluations and depending on what we are doing, like in workplace, we have a whole program for living labs, for example. Workplace, mm -hmm. we try to measure continuously with healthcare based on what data we can get. We do it at right points in time. And so much, of course, depends on the level of access an architect has to the final environment after yeah. it's operational. So yeah. that determines some of what we measure. Can you share a favorite case study that you have done or heard of where evidence-based design made a difference? Sure. One of our favorite case studies is from ProMedica Hospital in Toledo. So that was designed, it started back in 2014. We did diagnostics in 2015. So did a lot of behavior mapping, shadowing, interviewing, survey data, whatever we could get our hands on in the tight amount of time that we had. We did a lot of evidence-based design. So we looked at the literature that was out there. I actually remember when I first joined health, I was amazed by the number of times you would have a conversation about where should the toilet go, right? Still to this date, you're like, where does the toilet go? <laughs> we wrote a little tiny white paper that was called, where goes the toilet? <laughs> oh, I got to look that up. That's cool. Every different scenario, <laughs> pros and cons and the evidence supporting it. And understanding that so much depends on your operational model and what clinical services you have there. But we did a lot of things. 
And there was a very interesting moment, for example, where we realized that the biggest inefficiency in a particular acute care unit was in the separation between the nutrition room mm. and the meds and supplies. Mm. And it was a very tiny insight, but it changed how we co-located med supplies and nutrition because in a single med event, we realized that the largest wasted walking was going to get that little thing called applesauce for when you have to give a med yeah, <laughs> to yeah. someone, right? So we did this mapping of a nurse journey on a single med event, realized all the points where space was making it so difficult, optimized for it, transferred that into a script, which became a walking design tool, like a simulation tool that we still use. So every time we did a plan, we would run mm. that simulation and see what would it look like mm. for a nurse to go from A to B for all of these different scenarios huh. and also changed our standards when nutrition, meds, and supplies were co-located, right? Huh. So very tiny example, but very... I love that. Yeah, it's like software for the built environment and you're run, running sure. that software for new yeah. new hardware. That's so cool. And what you're doing is giving back time to that nurse. To spend more time on the bedside. Yeah. And the other thing interesting about that software and analogy bond is we realized that computational scripts have to understand human scripts. Mm. So until they knew the human script, what do you do? Where do you go? Why do you go there? What is really beneficial? What's a waste? We weren't even simulating the right thing. So just doing an adjacency analysis is not enough. Yeah. The human script has to be overlaid Got on it. the space. And that became part of our simulation. We opened during COVID. It was a pretty incredible hospital still. There were a lot of things that were done for staff well-being, light accessibility to all staff members, et cetera, et cetera. And then we wrapped it up with a performance evaluation. So we got outcomes at the end. So we could see an improvement in HCAP scores. We did mm. see an improvement in sound levels and decibel levels, like ambient mm. sound levels. So it was good to kind of go back, test against our hypotheses. One thing we do that the audience might appreciate is we put together something called design intent documents. Hmm. So a design intent document is a document where your design intent is annotated on your design documents. Hmm. So you're saying, I'm doing this for this reason, and these are my hypothesized outcomes. And these are the metrics to which... Like you're doing this to give more time to exactly. the nurse or increase efficiency exactly. in the clinical so workforce. This will reduce walking distance. This will improve line of sight and patient satisfaction. And here is the metric associated with it. And then you lay yourself open to measuring those metrics and understanding if something didn't work out the way it did, why? And I'll close out this story with the fact that when we went back, one of the biggest things we realized that the design intent that was evident and documented to the design and construction teams had not been shared with the operational teams the same way. Mm. And oftentimes, the gap between design and outcomes is operations. Mm. So that was a big takeaway for us and for us to realize that maybe you need playbooks and things like almost like instruction manuals that go mm. in place because they're intentionally designed, intentionally yeah. operated, but that's not always communicated all the way through. Mm. It's kind of like having a driver's manual for a car, for yeah. example. Okay, It is. It really is. 
And the other example too, born, which is not from healthcare, is in a live-learn neighborhood. So around the same time, uh-huh. where we designed a mixed-use live-learn neighborhood for UC San Diego, we had the same opportunity to measure student outcomes when they were in an existing campus, and then after they moved to the new campus. It was a longitudinal study. It was a fascinating study because for this one, we leaned on our nonprofit, the Center for Advanced Design Research and Evaluation, and we got research scholars on site. Mm. So that meant UC San Diego students for a couple of years gathered data and measured in the campus that they were actually on. Mm. And the provost was very visionary. She had this vision that capital projects should be learning instruments. Mm-hmm. And through that, she really wanted to change curriculum. So the sustainability story became a sustainability studio. We started working with the psychology staff. And then one of the data points that was fascinating for us to see is not only did we see an improvement in satisfaction, which is a simple thing to ask, but we saw a reduction in self-reported depression, mm. which was very Interesting. The journal article is just going in right now, so we'll, oh, we'll so see cool. how that turns out. But again, health is health is everywhere. Yeah. And is this what you're teaching to your students at the University of Michigan? These are architecture students. So yes, the class I teach is health by design. It's a seminar. We've been lucky. It is architecture students. We've also had HCI, like human-computer interaction students, social work students, sometimes medical students. It's meant to be a cross-disciplinary seminar, but they get to design and they get to design concept and put it out there. So it's been a lot of fun. The latest class was around primary care by design. So we did brain health by design, aging by design, mental health by design, point of decision design, which is something we've done a lot of work on. And then this one was primary care. And they came up with ideas like, for example, why isn't the primary care first point of contact in the school nurse? Mm. Like what would happen if in the school at that first point of contact, the school nurse was linked to the pediatrician? Yeah. How would that change? So in academia, you can really think about the ideal world. And in practice, you get to prototype and test it and say, yeah, not quite ready yet, but we'll get there. Well, how does that relate to like the built environment architecture? That seems like a more of a system design. I love that prompt, Bon. I think the biggest challenge for our field is that we have started from the built environment. We Hmm. can't start from the built environment. We have to start from the system and then understand what the built environment manifest is. So Mm. all of the designs had a built environment component. They actually had to decide for this physical manifest, what would the digital manifest be? Because that's become inarguable right now. Yeah. Uh, And you've talked about this before too, right? That the relationship between the digital and the physical, they're not so separate anymore. It's very fluid to go between those two interfaces. And we're seeing that in healthcare too, of like your first experience in healthcare may be a digital one Mm -hmm. that we 
will actually bring you into a brick and mortar healthcare facility, but often it's Absolutely. going and having a virtual visit with a doctor instead of going to the doctor's office. Absolutely right. I think my colleague, Deborah Wingler, who leads health now, does a lot about the digital front door. Like it's it's changed. And Oh, I love that. Okay. I, I don't think the audience, can you talk about the digital front door? The digital front mean? door is that that's your first point of entry. You start with the digital front door. That's where you enter the system. And then your physical touch point is sporadic and it's as needed. But the digital tends to be more of a continuum especially if you do it right. like That's a great way of maintaining a relationship with the system. And then the physical manifest, because you're always somewhere. You're always somewhere. So figuring out what does it mean for you and I to have this conversation? What do I need in my environment? What do you need in yours? Mm -hmm. For us to then have that person-to-person -person interaction, the IRL interaction, what would that need? We actually did the phrasing we've used often is cloud print and footprint. Well, I love that cloud print versus footprint. footprint. Okay. So every interaction, you look at the experience and you say, okay, what has to happen in the footprint? What happens in the cloud print? What keeps moving back and forth? And that's how you decide your physical and digital systems hmm. in place. So it's an interesting time for the profession because we cannot start with a building. The building yeah. is a means for something bigger which means we have to start with systems. The two frameworks we use consistently, one is linking design to outcomes, and the second is the design continuum. The mm. design continuum means you think about whatever it is you're designing for, and then what information design do you need, what product design do you need, what interior architecture or urban design do you need, and what policy design do you need? Yeah. So unless we look at it that way, somehow we... We always drop the ball between the boundaries or the silos of disciplines. Yeah. So every discipline has done its work really well. Yeah. But the system is not seeing the outcome. And that really means we need to blur those boundaries very intentionally. Yeah. And the pandemic has definitely blurred those boundaries. And for those <laughs> of us who are more used to working in the physical footprint, mm -hmm. had to jump into the cloud yeah. print. For a, you know, yeah. telehealth, for example, a lot of doctors were forced into telehealth and probably teachers who are used to teaching students in a classroom were forced to use Zoom. And there is this blending of these yeah. two worlds. Truly is. I mean, I'm curious, Bon, from your perspective, like as an emergency department physician, how, what was that like for you? How did you navigate that? Well, for me, it's not too different because I still had to work. <laughs> You know, I can't have that cloud print, uh -huh. uh, but I've saw with many patients who saw their specialist or saw their primary care doctor, like these visits were a lot of them were virtual mm -hmm. and I did not see or did not experience a decrease in care. Hmm. And sometimes I saw that patients actually had better access Mm -hmm. because that door was usually more open, the digital door rather than the physical door, right? They just had mm -hmm. to make a virtual telehealth appointment or, or they called the office. And I saw that documenting in the electronic health record versus like them having to wait weeks to communicate with that physician. Love that. I would have loved to shadow you during that time. 
Oh, it was a little scary. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe not. Maybe love is a strong woman. <laughs> you, know, you, you made me think of something in the shift I'm seeing in the industry overall is I think people are realizing that to get to outcomes, you have to design your strategy first, your experience next, then your operations and your facility design follow. Mm-hmm. Which is reversed from before, right? Which is reversed from before. Like you look at these programmatic elements and you say, where did this come from? Like, what does it tell you to have a waiting room in the program? The yeah. assumption is you will wait. Yeah. Right. So programmatic elements have assumptions. Those are operational assumptions and they're experiential assumptions. It's helped us to get into like flipping it and saying, what are we designing? What's the strategy? What service lines will you really be designing for? What is the experience you want? To get that, what do you need in operations? What do you need in the built environment? And then let's prove it out by saying, this is our hypothesis. Did it really work out the way we intended? Can you give me some examples of some of your favorite healthy designs, either in the US or other parts of the world? Because you have a very global experience, you know, grew up in India, went to college there and yeah. You also study in Singapore, then you got your PhD in Texas. What are some examples of your favorite examples of healthy design, whether it's in the built environment or urban planning? It's such a good question, Bon, and we should be rattling off examples, right? But very rarely are our favorite examples of healthy environment in healthcare environments. Mm-hmm. Right? So the healthy environment I can think of is gardens. Like when I was in Singapore, I would love going to the Chinese and Japanese gardens. Like that was my favorite place. They're amazing. They're all over. They're not like you have to go out of the city. Like they're like yeah. in the city. You, you're actually stumbling over them as you're walking or taking Literally little pockets of green. And I've noticed a lot of the innovation we're doing, seeing right now, for example, is coming out of this big hospital we're doing in Singapore. And it's really interesting to see because they have taken an entire warehouse where they are prototyping and testing everything that they're putting. Mm, Wow. And they have a big biophilic driver. And they are going through this process of doing strategy, operations, experience, and then facility, which has been very interesting to see. But Singapore is such a dense city and has so many of these pockets of respite where you can go in and get fresh air. And that's been very interesting to see some of their buildings look like they have gardens pouring out of them like forest at like right it's like hard to explain you just have to go see pictures of it i'm like i remember passing by a building i'm going it looks like there's trees coming out from the side of a building so so even though so some people use this argument of like oh well the city's like too dense and urban for there to be biophilic design, but that's not true. Singapore that is not true it. at all. Yeah. Some of the best examples of biophilia are in the vertical facade treatments mm. that you're starting mm. to see. And the best innovation often comes out of constraints. Mm-hmm. Singapore is landlocked and it has to be in harmony with the ocean. Yeah. It has to, to survive. So reclaiming land, doing a lot of that is just really important for survival. And so you see these strategies that are great for human health, but they're great for environmental health. And that's the biggest shift I think that we've seen is planet health and people health Mm. are merging now. They are not separate drivers anymore. It was long overdue, 
but something simple like air quality. We've talked about it in terms of infection rates for years, but now we're talking about air quality for just healthy living. Yeah. And it helps you to have environmental sustainability to get better air quality that helps you with healthy living and reduces infection. So I think it's a good time to see how these fields are blending too. Example from India, courtyard houses like residences, homes, bungalows Uh with courtyards within them. So how you create micro environments with full Mm. passive ventilation and management as well. Like it's just, you've really, really managed to have, I can still feel the breeze of being in a courtyard that I miss so much in our glass boxes. Yeah. And that's like old school design. It's old school design. It's passive design and it's vernacular design. There is a lot in the vernacular that is actually deeply scientific. Yeah. And I bet you so many of us who have lived in cities, especially during the pandemic, would have loved a courtyard design. I know. I know our breath became hostage, right, during the yeah. pandemic. And yeah. just a little bit of fresh air was a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish all hospitals had courtyard design of <laughs> staff to go out for yeah. a little bit of respite. Because I, I remember that of going, I just want to take off my mask and get some fresh air. But there's currently no place to do that. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to go into into the staff break room because... There'd be other staff in there. We would all have our mask on, off, and we go, this is probably the most dangerous place to be right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little window for like five seconds of fresh air and breathability. Yeah. And I think there's so much in the micro environment space that we can and are exploring to get there. But yeah, air is a big part of it and breaks. I think the caregiver burnout, the huge burden on caregivers right now. I mean, Bon, like the fact that you're getting the time to have this conversation and looking relaxed while having it, <laughs> that's a testament to you. But Well, this is a break for me. I get to <laughs> hang out with amazing people like you. But it is. It's been amazing. It's not been fair. Before we wrap up this conversation, I want to talk about your interest between the fields of architecture and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. I know you've done a lot of work in that. Sure. That also was born out of the dissertation work that I was talking about. So that's where I discovered I became one of the, we were called pioneers, but it really meant naive, passionate students. Who oh, come on, you're a pioneer. But that was when ANFA was created, it was the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. It's based out of the Salk Institute and UC San Diego. It's a group of architects and neuroscientists working together to find the intersections. And I think it's been really interesting to unlock the potential of design when you understand or unlock the potential of the human mind. Mm. So the understanding how we think and feel gives us so much more agency in how we design and the kind of outcomes we'll get. One of the things we're doing right now as part of that commitment on the HKS side, a partnership with the Center for Brain Health. Mm. And the partnership is based on this big, huge movement that we are starting to see, which is shifting the narrative from mental health to brain health Mm -hmm. and taking that preventive approach, really changing the way we talk about mental health and the stigma associated with it. So for us, brain health has become this umbrella initiative 
which is about cognitive fitness. What am I really doing to stave off burnout? How am I connecting, paying attention, focusing, being creative? Like creativity is great for brain health, something that we hadn't realized until we got into that. So there's a lot of research that we're trying to do on how place can promote brain health, can promote cognitive and emotional affordances that will get us to the outcomes we're looking for and reduce some of this burden that we have put on ourselves, ironically, Mm. in many ways. So leveraging the power of place and really going straight to the brain health and mental health objectives, because we've done a better job with physical health than we have with mental health so far. And it's a paradigm shift of thinking about brain health for more of a community lens rather than mental health, I think, is often seen as individualistic, like what is wrong with me? Versus, you know, what is wrong with our communities, our environments, the way that we have designed them? How can we think about the collective brain health of a community rather than focusing on one one individual? And the fact that connecting on the community is actually better for your individual brain. Like so much evidence that shows that socialization has not just psychological, but neurological impact. Mm. We know it. So I think it's a huge case. And I always share this very depressing, not depressing, but a statistic that we in the health field should be aware of, that we do know that from a public health standpoint, you could go across neighboring zip codes and have a 10-year drop in mortality. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, wellness is a $4.3 trillion industry. And the biggest bubble of that is individual health and wellness and beauty products. Yeah. Right. So the shift or the balance, this lesson of my health can directly impact your health and your health can directly impact mine. And if we put a little bit, not all of it, but if we put a little bit into our community, it benefits us as individuals. I think that's still a long way to go. But we have been seeing the coming together of healthcare systems, housing senior living, and retail and mixed use. And I think it's an exciting time where health becomes a multi-typology challenge. Mm. I love that. I want to end our conversation by asking you if a listener were to come visit you, where would you take them out to eat in your neighborhood? Um, Such a good question. I think I would take them out to this very tiny Indian place where you get the best wraps called jites. And it's a little hole in the wall place, but it has the best roti wraps ever. And we would get really, really spicy food. And then we would have some kandai to drink it down. And we'd be very happy people. Lovely. What's a restaurant called? Jites. Jites. All right. I'll I'll put a link to that for the (laughs) listeners. I don't know if Apolly can join you, but if you are in Michigan, that's a place to go. Absolutely. Well, this was so much fun. It was so good to reconnect with you. Thanks for doing this. I know you have a super busy schedule, but really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Likewise, Vaughn. This has been a joy. Thank you for all that you do. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Opali. You can find her on Twitter at U-P-A-L-I-N-A-N-D-A. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. 
Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi. Editing by Fernando Carrios. Theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. <laughs>